Welcome to the Epicenter Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Epicenter Church, visit epicenterchurch.com.au. Jesus, I thank you for the opportunity to share. Uh, what this is that I feel that you've placed in my heart. And God, just like that uh, vision that Beck was sharing about, Jesus, that the shackles get taken off us. I pray that as we go through this series, Father, I pray that the shackles that are holding us back, Father, perhaps different ones for, for different parts of us, Father, but I pray that those shackles that are holding on to us, Jesus, I pray that they get stripped off, Father, and that we can step into what it is that you've created us to become and step into in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. So everyone that grew up in Victoria would have grown up with Aussie rules. Is that correct? So did anyone not grow up with their Aussie rules? Does anyone not understand Aussie rules? No. So yeah, the Queenslanders are putting their hands up. The Queenslanders are only putting their hands up in defiance. That's all it is. If you talk to a Queenslander, this has got nothing to do with my message, but I must say this in public from the stand. If you talk to a Queenslander, regardless of how long they've lived outside of Queensland, they are still a Queenslander. And Queensland is still better than any other state in Australia. <laughs> Obviously, there's a lot of Queenslanders and I've made a lot of enemies. So, I grew up here in Victoria, actually just down the road in Kyabram, and I grew up with Aussie rules, but... I can't play football to save myself. Like, I am hopeless with football. So I never played football as a kid as far as a sport, like, in a team. But I'd play it at recess, and I'd go home. We had a football at home, so I'd play it after school, just mucking around. I'd play it on weekends when I was trying to save some time. But I'm one of those people that when you're playing markers up, it doesn't really matter where you stand, you've got a really good chance of catching the ball. Because... If, if you're that person still running back after you've kicked it from a far off thing, I could still kick it to you even though I'm trying to kick it over here. For instance, and I think everyone has those mishap kicks, but it would happen to me about one every three kicks. It just goes anywhere other than where it should go. So, you, like, you know, when, you, you, when you're watching AFL, like, whoever it is has got the ball and they just run to the goal square. They could kick it from 20 metres back, but they decide to get two metres from the goals and kick it. And they boot it up into the grandstand. I used to try and do that at school when we were playing in recess. It would nearly go over my head. Like I'd get as close as I could to the goal square to you would swear that I couldn't miss it. And one of two things would happen. It would either go out of bounds or it'd hit one of the posts without fail. I could, any shot that was easy, I'd never get it. But I used to come home and to kill time, to do whatever it was, I used to play with the football and I had a vivid imagination and my vivid imagination told me that I was good at football, which I really wasn't. But we had this massive swing set in our backyard that I used to use as the goal square. And so I'd kick the ball in the air and then I'd mark it because I was playing for a team and then the other team had to kick it. And so you've got to try and picture, I'm not 33, I'm like 14 or 12 or Whatever age makes this sound more okay, that is the age that I am, I am at that point. And so I'd kick the ball, I'd mark it, and I'd be playing for the team, and I was always a star player, okay? And at times I'd have to play for both teams because it didn't make sense when there was like, and then I'd narrate the whole thing. So I was the players of, of all teams, of both teams, and I was the star player of one and the most useless player of the other because I always favoured one team, that was the one that I was playing or I wanted to win. And then I was also the commentator, so I'd narrate everything that I was doing. Everything that I was doing would be narrated as, and it would be vocal, so anyone around me could hear it. 
And this used to happen consistently, but there was one time I can vividly remember, it happened like three or four times in a row. I'd grab the ball and I'd pretend like I'd marked the ball. I'd kicked it to myself, yes, and I'd marked the ball. And I'm lining up and pretending that I'm going to like take a shot for goals. And then I just dash, I play on and I start running straight to the goals. And then I get about two metres from the goals and I go to boot it through into the grandstands and it goes like over this way and so it's now about 20-30 metres away so I would race and I've been rating it so that person whoever I was I was always actually Robert Wiltshire I was always Robert Wiltshire the star player would run yes it's a little bit embarrassing to share and I would miraculously get the ball before any player from the other team got the ball and then I'd race back to the goal square and the same thing happened again I kicked it and it went the other direction this happened like three or four times and I can't believe it, but the star player every time managed to get the ball, get back to the goal square without getting tackled, without everyone, anyone else even touching the ball. And I did this three or four times, and then I eventually got the goal, and I won it for, the, for, for my team. I don't know what team that was. It was probably Collingwood because I'm a backdoor Collingwood supporter. I like to keep it a little bit silent. These people get angry as soon as you mention Collingwood, but I think I'm amongst friends. Is that correct? No. Wishful thinking. And, and so like this happened over and over again. And, and if I reflect over my childhood, and even if I just reflect over that, that moment, I had a vivid imagination, which I, I assumed that most of us, specifically when we were children, had vivid imaginations. We would imagine things. And if I go through and reflect over my childhood and think about it, and think about my playing like that and my daydreaming, I always pictured myself in the winner's circle. I never pictured myself on the, the losing team or being the, the mediocre player. I always pictured myself in the winner's circle. Like, like for, for, it's not meant to be named men just yet, David. I think we all do that to a point. Like, have you, for another example, I don't know if this is true or this is a fallacy, but this is, I'm a dude and I watch movies. So I'm not a chick. I don't know how chicks think. But from what I see on movies, anyways, from a certain age, I don't know what age that is, you dream about your wedding day. Is that correct? Okay. You know what I'm talking about, though, don't you? We've all seen the movies, the shows, the cartoons where she's dreaming about her wedding. Is that correct? Like she's dreaming about walking down the aisle, what dress she's going to wear. I don't know why girls do that. It's ridiculous. And anyways, but... It is, it is pretty. Yes, my wedding day was glorious. So was everyone else's. And everyone else too get married. Your wedding day will be glorious as well. So it is a good thing probably to dream about it. But anyways, I like it how she's dreaming about her wedding. I find it so fascinating that she's not dreaming about her cousin's wedding, her sister's wedding, her friend's wedding. She's dreaming about her wedding. Why is she dreaming about her wedding? Because she's dreaming about being in the winner's circle. For some of you here, uh, for some examples, perhaps you grew up wanting to be a ballerina. Don't laugh, David. There could be people that grew up wanting to break toes. But you grew up wanting to be a ballerina, but I bet you never thought about being an average ballerina. You dreamt about being a great ballerina. So for, for, for other people, they've grown up wanting to do other things, and perhaps none of my examples will meet anyone, but perhaps you wanted to be a copper. Perhaps you wanted to work in the fi- <laughs> fire brigade. If you're anything like me, my, my dreams and my desires, it actually wasn't AFL at all. My, my desires was to grow up and ride bulls. My desires was to grow up and be a farmer. They are my dreams and visions. And if, if I look back and reflect and think about it, I never, ever dreamt about having an average farm. I dreamt about having great stock that were well looked after, growing great crops. 
I didn't actually know what a good farmer was. Probably still don't. Same thing with riding bulls. I never dreamt about being mediocre. I dreamt about excelling at what I did. And if I think we're all, if we all went back and reflected over our lives, we've all done the same thing. We've all dreamt about doing something. There's something placed in us that we've dreamt about. And regardless of whether you realize it or not, I would assume at least that none of your dreams involved you being mediocre. Not because you're vain, not because you're selfish or self-centered, but because rather I think something's been planted in us from the beginning. If we go to the first slide, I think from the beginning of time, from when we're infants, we've craved significance. Every single one of us. We were born with that desire, wanting significance, wanting to feel significant, to be significant, to be seen as significant. You can drop that slide, Maddie. We've all been created with this desire, with this drive. And I think that's a large portion of why we're growing up as kids with this vivid imagination. We're always dreaming about ourselves being in the winner's circle. But I think what we end up doing as we're growing and trying to discover what it is that makes us significant or why we're significant, we start putting ourselves in a cage as we start equating our actions as being significant or our actions as creating us in significant. For instance, we start attaching our significance to our job. I'm good at what I do. Therefore, I'm starting to gauge significance out of that. Or our sport, or our looks, or our talents, or or whatever it is. But at some point, we run into trouble with that because what happens when you can't work that job anymore? What happens when you can't play that sport anymore? And regardless of how good looking you are, at some point, you're not going to be as good as looking as you were as we age what like what do we do when we get to that place if our significance is all based in those areas we get to a time in life a season in life regardless of whether you're there or not we'll all arrive there where our significance was based in something but now it's got nothing to hold itself on if we go to the next slide you see the reality is this you aren't significant because you do something good you're significant because you reflect someone Our actions don't make us significant and our actions don't make us insignificant. It's rather who we're reflecting determines our significance or not. So what we're going to be doing, you can drop that slide, for the next um, few weeks is going through a, a story from the book of Exodus about this guy discovering his significance, discovering what it is that God's placed into him and learning to step out in that and learning to become what it is that he has been gifted, created, given by God to become. It goes through his journey. This guy is called Moses. Discovering what it is, running away from it, being terrified of it and learning to be brave enough, to be wild enough to step outside the cage. If you've never read this book, this book called Exodus, it's like a movie. It's nuts. It's a little bit like Harry Potter meets that other guy, that wizard guy. Who's that wizard guy? Yes, what's that movie? Lord of the Rings. No, Lord of the Rings meets Harry Potter. It's a little bit like Lord of the Rings meets Harry Potter. A little bit. Like there's, they're on this journey to discover something, to release people into freedom. And then at the same time, there's all these supernatural, crazy, miraculous things taking place. If you haven't read it, grab it, go through it. It'll be like reading a movie script. It'll be incredible. So 
We're not going to be going through the entire book. We're going to go through the first couple of chapters, first, I think, four chapters of the book, discovering, looking at how Moses goes through about discovering what it is a God's place in his heart. So we begin um, Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. If you put it up on the screen, Matt. So the background to here, these people, the Hebrews, they're Jews. You know, the people that got slightly longer noses, that's these people. And so they have found themselves in Egypt. They've been there for several generations. They are now slaves. And so that's where we pick it up from in chapter 8. It says this, Eventually a new king came to power in Egypt. That means a new pharaoh. He said to his people, Look, the people of Israel, they've, they've bred well, they've multiplied, and now they outnumber us and they, they are stronger than we are. He's starting to panic. He's freaking out. And we go to the next one. So he says to, he grabs his advisors and he brings all his advisors together and he, he says this, we must make a plan to keep them from growing anymore. So he, he gets his strategists together and they start navigating and putting together a plan of how are we going to stop this population increase. And so this is the plan that they come up with, throw every newborn Hebrew baby into the Nile River. So ultimately they'll get eaten by the Nile crocodiles and, but you may let the girls live. So this is their plan of ceasing the spreading of the population. It does it instantly. Like it's, it's not this slow process. They're wanting something quick. You can go to the next slide. And this is what they come up with. Let's throw everyone into the Nile. They'll drown. They'll get eaten. It'll be done. Um, chapter 2 says, starts with here. About this time, a man and a woman from the tribe of Levi, they get married. So there's this big celebration. All the relatives, they come from everywhere. And they have this big celebration. They put on cake and dancing and everything. Then the most miraculous thing happens after you get married is you have a child. Generally, So the woman becomes pregnant and she gives birth to a son. And then she does what every mother has ever done. She decides that her baby is special. Every mother think that? I'm not being facetious. I think my kids are special as well. But so she does what every single mother does, that her kid is special. Out of all the other children born, hers is special. None of the other mums have this idea of, of saving theirs. Perhaps theirs weren't seen as special. There are, you know what? I think every mother saw their kid as special and they wanted to save them, but she just went to it an extra step. And so what she does is she sees that her baby was special and so she decides to keep him hidden for three months because she doesn't want him to get thrown out. Let's keep continuing. Verse 3. But when she could no longer hide him, so she's hidden him for a certain amount of time, by now he's screaming and he's pooping too much, so she needs to do something about this because it's getting out of control. So she puts the baby into a basket and she lays it amongst the reeds in the, in the river, which I find nuts because I think Nile, I think crocodiles, I think snapping teeth. I don't know how this baby's still alive. But she hides him there. So she's, he's, in the, he's in the Nile River. And if we go on to verse 4, it says this. When Pharaoh's daughter, so this is Pharaoh's daughter. She is the princess of Egypt. She comes down to bathe in the river. So she's soaping herself up. She's shampooing her hair. She's getting cleaned. She's putting perfume on. And then she sees something. She sees this basket. It's sitting there in the reeds, just bobbing in the reeds. The crocodiles aren't touching it. And so she decides, I need to rescue this basket. There could be good things in it. There could be good drill, like gold or perfume. There's something in there and so she sends her maid to get it verse 6 says when the princess opened it she saw the baby she sees the baby and the little boy was crying and she felt sorry for him 
find it fascinating because it continues on and says how this child is, she realizes it's one of the Hebrew kids. And she knew that she was supposed to throw it out, but she feels something. She feels sorry for him. So she says, I've got to do something about it. Let's continue on. Verse seven. Then the baby's sister approached the princess. So the baby's sister is watching from a distance and decides this is the time to go and do something. I need to do something to rescue my brother in some ways. So the baby sister approaches the princess the daughter of the king, the daughter of Pharaoh, and says this, should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Great plan, great plan. Verse eight continues on. Yes, do, the princess replied. The daughter of Pharaoh replied. She's the king's daughter, replies. Yes, do this. So the girl went and got not just anyone, not just any Hebrew mother, but he, she got Moses' mother. This is Moses that we're actually reading about. Verse 9 says, Take this baby and nurse him for me, the princess told the baby's mother. Continue on. Later, when the boy was older, so the suggested idea here is he's about two or three years old. He's not nine, he's not 10, he's not 12, he's not 15. He's about two or three years old. Once he was weaned, the boy was older. His mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, back to the princess of Egypt, who adopted him as her own son. I, I like this. So mom brings him back. So he's not old. He's not growing up with Hebrew customs, traditions for years and years and years. He's not being brought up in a slave world, but immediately he's getting transferred back into ownership of the princess. So now he is a prince. He's adopted into a royal family. He's now a prince of Egypt. Continue on, verse 11. Many years later, when Moses had grown up, the suggestion here is he's about 40 years old. So it's gone from two to three to now he's about 40 years old. So this guy has been in the palace for a long time. If anyone knows much about Egyptians, know they're well-schooled and specifically anyone in the palace would have been exceedingly well-schooled. He would have been well-schooled in history. In writing, in reading, in learning, he would have been smart. He would have been schooled in leadership, which is something as we'll go on, we'll see outworking in his life. He would have been schooled in all these things. And so many years later, after he'd grown up, he went out to visit his own people. I don't know whether he realized or whether he was told the whole time that were his own people, but however he discovers, somehow he knows that his people aren't the Egyptians that he's adopted, but his own people are out somewhere else. So this guy's a free Hebrew, grown up as an Egyptian, living as a prince of Egypt. And so he marches out to see his own people, the Hebrews, and he sees something. He sees how hard they were forced to work. You can drop that slide. He noticed something. That word when it says he saw something, it wasn't just I was driving down the street and I saw people walking. It's not just I noticed something or I saw this or went out there and I I saw people that were working hard and then goes back and reports to Pharaoh and says, you know what? These guys are working really good. They're really working hard. It's it's nothing like that. It's the sea that is gut-wrenching. Like he notices you know those, those moments where you see something, but it, it goes far beyond just your eyes. You see something with your, your senses, with your feelings, with your, you feel something. That's what he's doing. He's seeing something. He's seeing an injustice. He's seeing the injustice of his people. And he's not saying it's injustice because it's his people, but rather I believe he's seeing this injustice because this is what God has placed on him to see, to become, to step into. So he steps out of 
Egypt. He steps out of the palace and he goes out into this another world, into this other area, and he sees something. He sees an injustice taking place to people, and all of a sudden, something begins to rise up in him. What I find so fascinating about this is Moses had, or would have had everything. He would have had all the schooling, and yet he sees something with people that were, would have been illiterate. He would have had all the gifts, all the talents. He would have had servants, had made servants. He would have had everything, but yet he now is discovering something else. You ever known that person or that people or that family, they just got everything, but they never have enough. They keep collecting more and more and more, and they constantly, they're wanting more. Why is that? I don't think it's always the same reason, but a lot of the time the reason is, is this, that we're trying to get our significance out of collecting our items. And we have to keep getting and getting and getting and getting and getting because we don't feel significant. No matter how many items we collect or, or get, we never feel significant. We never feel loved. We never, never feel valued. We're always struggling and, and grappling with that. Anyone know those people? And perhaps you're that person. You're constantly trying to grab something to make yourself feel better. You're constantly, obviously, you're constantly trying to do something to, to make yourself feel better, but it just never makes you feel better. Can I suggest it's because we're still trying to find our significance based in what we do as opposed to what's placed in us? What I love about specifically the story of Moses, and this is why we're using this, is that this is a guy that was a leader. He was a born leader. But not just a born leader, growing up in... Pharaoh's palace, he would have had leadership built into him. He would have been taught to lead, how to lead effectively. And what I find so intriguing about this is if you do any sort of study, that he would have been leading people. But yet it wasn't enough for him. Why wasn't enough for him? Because even though his leadership was a part of his personality, a part of who he was, a part of what he was supposed to do, that wasn't the sole measure of what was supposed to make him significant. See, anytime we, we try and get our significance out of what we do, we'll always find ourselves lacking and wanting more and more and more because we'll never feel significant enough. That's why you can work that job all your life and feel somewhat significant, but always have to keep striving for more and more and more. And at some point you get to the end of that job and you're like, I can't do this anymore. Now I feel insignificant. Or that sport or that whatever it is. And this is what is happening with Moses now. He's starting to discover something. And right now he's discovered something that's buried with him him, that he didn't even know was there. A heart for justice. You know, everything, every single one of us have got a gift, different gift and talent that we get to outwork, that we get to use. But the problem is, I think, so often with our gifts and talents, we, we derive our significance from the actions they produce instead of letting what defines our significance define our actions. We generally have it so backwards that we're, we're allowing actions to define us as opposed to letting what determines our significance determine our actions. See, what Moses is finding here is there's something buried within him. Yes, I'm called to be a leader. Yes, I've got leadership, but that doesn't make me significant. But now I'm starting to find something, I'm starting to feel something that is drawing something out of me. Can I suggest that that's all placed in us, regardless of, of whether it's injustice for us or it's something else. Different, different ones of us have different skill sets, abilities, desires in our hearts. Some of us just love helping, serving, loving on people. 
That's a gift. That's something that God's placed in us. It's not our actions that determine our significance. It's not what we do, not what we do that's good that determines our significance. Our significance is rather determined by whom it is that we reflect. Next slide. The Christian narrative of the creation story. So this is the Christian narrative of how not just the earth was formed, but how men and women came into existence. It says this, Then God said, Let us make human beings. Let us make Alice and Will. Let us make John and Denise, Ali. In our image to be like us. So God created human beings in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. He created them male and female. You see, I think this is what we are supposed to reflect. This is the image of God. Perhaps the big question for all of us here this morning is, what is the image of God that has been placed inside of me that I'm supposed to reflect? I think it's when we discover the image of God that's buried within us, we start stepping into the significance that we are born to become, born to outwork. You can drop that slide. When we discover that image of God that's buried within us, then that image of God starts determining our actions as opposed to our actions determining what we believe the image of God is. And this is what Moses is finding here in this moment, in this instant. He's finding the image of God that is buried deep within him. Justice, a heart for justice, a heart wanting to see people set free from oppression, from the yoke of slavery. That's his heart. That's his call. That's his reflection of the image of God. And he is deliberate in stepping into that. Next slide. You aren't significant because you do something good. You're significant because you reflect someone good. I wonder what it is that you reflect. I think all of us here, regardless of whether we've been a follower of Jesus, you can drop that slide, for 100 years, no one here is 100 years old, but let's go with that, 100 years, or regardless of whether you've been a follower of Jesus for two days, or regardless of whether perhaps you're not even a follower of Jesus yet, I think all of us are birthed with, are given, are gifted with a unique way that we are called to reflect the image of God. I think we put chains on ourselves every time we try and determine our, have our actions determine our significance. I think we cage ourselves in. I think there's a world for us to discover that we're supposed to take that thing that makes us significant and walk into the world and have that which determines our significance to determine our actions. I wonder what it is that God's placed in your heart. I wonder what it is that God's placed in your heart that determines your significance? Is it justice? But is it something maybe more practical? Maybe you just love sport. How is that reflecting the image of God? How are you using that that determines how or how are you using that which is buried in you reflect the image of God birthed in you? I wonder what it would look like if we were deliberate in stepping into that. I wonder what it would look like if we were really deliberate, really proactive in trying to discover that image that God's placed within us. And I wonder what it would do if we were deliberate to step into that. Something that I've noticed about significance is very, very similar. It has some differences, but it's very similar to, to identity. The first thing that significance does when we start discovering it, it's like a warm blanket. You know, it's cold mornings. They're freezing cold. They could be cold nights. You might be a night person, a morning person, and you get up and you put a, you sit maybe in front of the fire and you put a warm blanket on, and you sit down with a, a, a hot chocolate or a cup of tea or a coffee. You just feel comfortable, don't you? You feel protected. You feel snuggly. You feel like everything in life is is okay. It is 
confidence. Significance is just like that. It's like a warm blanket that allows us to feel comfortable, allows us to feel confidence. And what I've discovered with starting to discover what our significance is, it's like this warm blanket that clothes us, that gives us the confidence to step into what it is that God's called us to do. You see, I think a lot of us are actively outworking our calling or what it is that God's placed on our heart to do. But I think for a lot of us, we haven't determined or haven't come to the realization that that is what God has placed in us to reflect His image. And so until we come to that understanding, we haven't got this warm blanket on us. And so when it comes to you stepping out, we freak out. Instead of stepping out, we freak out. We get scared. We get paralyzed. We don't move anywhere because we're not confident enough to step in. I think discovering our significance, discovering what it is that God's place in our heart to draw out of us in order for us to step into gives us the confidence to step into it. I don't at all for a minute believe that just because you've got the confidence, just because you feel significant, it means that you're not cautious, that you're not nervous, that you're not uncomfortable. But what it means, I believe, is it gives us the faith to be able to step into whatever it is that God's placed on our hearts. Some of you here this morning have got extremely big, extremely big goals, dreams, and visions that God's placed on your heart. And some of you this morning have got these extremely big, goals, dreams, and visions that you're too scared to step into because at this point you're trying to determine your significance out of your actions as opposed to realizing that that is what God has created you to do. So if God's created you to do that, he's created you to step out into that. I'm going to leave the story there and we're going to pick up the story and continue on um, next week with the story of Moses and Moses stepping out and then Moses getting terrified and Moses running away and Moses doing all sorts of things. So how about you stand up? I'd love to have the opportunity to pray for you. Uh, Father, I pray that all of us, Jesus, can ask you, pursue you, seek you, Father, to, to find what it is that you've placed in our hearts, Jesus, to, to become, to do, Father. I pray that all of us can can step into this significance that's not based in our actions, Father, not based in our good deeds, Jesus, but rather based in how it is that you've called us to be a reflection of you, Father. And I pray that as we do that, as we step into that, Jesus, I pray that the chains begin to fall off, Father. I pray that it helps us, it helps thrust us to step out into the world that, that you've created for us to discover, to go out and minister to, to love Jesus. And I pray that as we do this, as we step into this significance, Father, I pray that it enables us to interact and love on the people around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. Please subscribe to hear more sermons from Epicenter Church.